0: Back to our fourth and final podcast in this series on intentionally living for Christ. My name is Alyssa Dunker, and I'm grateful you've joined me. There are a lot of ways to cook a meal. If I want Italian, I need basil and oregano. If I want Indian, I need coriander and cumin. If I want the easy way, I set the oven for 400 and pull out the frozen pizza. All three approaches work, but I must have the end in sight. Is my goal lasagna, coconut curry, pepperoni if I put pepperoni pizza in the oven in 22 minutes I will not be pulling out lasagna as there are a variety of meals there are also many approaches to intentional living what works for one person may not work well for the next that is why I haven't given a formula if we only do x then our lives will definitely have purpose our world is too messy for this type of simplicity instead we have focused on the big picture keeping the end in mind. So how do we know when we are intentionally living for Christ? Here's what we have covered in the last three weeks. First, we intentionally live for Christ when we make it our aim to please Him. Our goal is not to please ourselves or other people. Two, we intentionally live for Christ when we see the contrast between eternity and our current suffering. And three, we intentionally live for Christ when we seek God's faithfulness when we face temptation. Today we will talk about how we intentionally live for Christ by recognizing his good purposes in our lives. All the things we experience are ultimately shaping us into his resurrected image. Let's take a look at one of the most well-known Bible verses including its immediate context, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the first four chapters of Romans, Paul talks at length about faith. All people are saved by faith including Abraham. This is our role in salvation. But in Romans 8, 28 to 30, we see words like foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. These words reveal the divine role in salvation, the intentional actions God has taken to create a relationship with his people. Throughout Christian history, believers have held differing interpretations about the relationship between human free will and God's sovereignty, these are important conversations. But Paul was not intending to create or answer theological questions in this context. What he was trying to do was give assurance. He was saying, If you have faith in Christ, you are not condemned. You are God's child. Nothing in the whole creation can ever separate you from his love. But what Paul meant for comfort has sometimes been misunderstood. Let's take a look at what Romans eight twenty eight through 30 promises and doesn't promise. Understanding these verses will help us live more intentionally for Christ. Several years ago, I lost my job. Hearing about this, well-meaning Christians would ask if I knew what God was trying to teach me. Or in an effort to encourage, I was told, everything happens for a reason. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what lesson God had for me. If I could only learn it, then I wouldn't have to repeat it. But such thinking presents a distorted view of God, a capricious God. Where do we get this twisted theology? I think our primary source is a misinterpretation of Romans eight twenty-eight. If we love God, the verse says that he works all things together for good. But when we know something in our lives is definitely not good, we can be stumped. Wanting to make sense of the mess, we might tell ourselves, maybe I lost that job because God wants to give me a better one. But if God is just trying to increase my salary or improve my work environment, then God seems pretty materialistic, and that just doesn't fit his character. If I believe Romans 8.28 means God sovereignly causes everything in my life to mean something good in this present life, I'm going to be disappointed with God. I've also unwittingly armed myself with words that can wound others. Victims of abuse shouldn't be asked what God is trying to teach them. Telling a grieving person that God will do something good through the death of their loved one is no comfort. When we misinterpret God's promise of working all things together for good and misapply it to this lifetime, we miss one of the most powerful promises in scripture. And for me, that promise Holds me when life makes no sense. We live in a society that believes truth is relative. So how can we know anything with certainty? But in a different culture, in a different time, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begins Romans 8:28 with these words, and we know. Paul is clear. The words that follow will be true in all cultures at all times. We know. I am so grateful on days when my head is spinning and the ground is shifting beneath my feet that I can know the following words. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But how do we define good? Paul can't be talking about what is good in this world. A few verses before the sentence, Paul says that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. He doesn't call the suffering good. And he doesn't tell us to figure out why it's happening. In verse 35, he asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? None of these things that he listed are good, nor does he call them good. Which leads me to ask myself, Am I defining good from my perspective or God's? My friend Amy Medina aptly described these two views in a blog she wrote. I pray for myself. I pray that my life would be rock free, peaceful, joyful, predictable. I pray for success in my endeavors, for financial stability, for good health. I pray that my life would impact many, that I would see the fruit of my labor, that my influence would be far reaching. And more importantly, I pray that my life would be poured out for you. God, I pray that my sin would be uncovered and rooted out, that I would live in dependence on you, that I would know you more fully, more deeply, more completely. I pray that my life will bring you glory. But what if, in order to answer the more important prayer, you must allow pain, sorrow, obscurity, defeat, loss? What if these are the means of answering the more important prayer? So even though it scares me, I must pray, your will be done. When I read Amy's words, I had to admit, sometimes I condemn God. I don't understand why some things have happened and why he hasn't stepped in. And those moments, I fail to recognize my pride. I, who have done evil, am judging the one who holds the world together. In this struggle, I still conclude, God is good. How, you may ask. Well, no one else has ever died for me. This is how I know God is good. There was a man hanging from a tree, blood poured out for me. This is my answer, and I hold on to it when the waves of suffering knock me off my feet. In the ESV, Romans 8 28 says, All things work together for good. At the risk of being a grammar geek, This phrase can also be translated, God causes all things to work together for good. The translations differ because Paul didn't include the subject of the sentence. But no matter, only God has the power to make things work together for good. This is why I prefer God as the subject. When I study the verb, which is works all things together, God opened my eyes. These four words are a single word in Greek it expresses the idea of synergy. Within the framework of human free will, God takes all things in our lives and converges them with his power to accomplish good. I'm talking about the kind of good my friend Amy mentioned, the good of loving God more fully and bringing him more glory. As I contemplated this verb, my mind went to that problem I can't solve. The one that had woken me up at 3 a.m., bringing panic to my heart, When I thought about God actually working within that situation, that he would not let it ultimately overcome me, that he would somehow transform evil into good, I wept and I told my soul, do not fear, rest, he is up to good. For the people called to his purpose, God is working all these things together for good and he reveals his plan. In chapter 8, verse 29, God created people in his image, but Adam and Eve's disobedience distorted this image. As their descendants, we have inherited this marred version of who God intended us to be. This was not God's good design, so he implemented a rescue plan to restore his image in humanity. The only way to do it was for God to bear this broken image himself and become a walking, breathing human being filled with the fullness of God. We were made in the image of God. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The actual image. The actual God of gods resting in human flesh. But God not only promised to restore his image in us, but to conform us into the image of the resurrected Christ. To be conformed means our bodies will be transformed in order to have the same form As a glorious Jesus, just as we have borne the image of Adam, the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of Jesus, the man of heaven. This act of grace will be greater than our original creation in Eden. Jesus, who is God, will humbly dwell in a human resurrected body while his people will be conformed to a body just like his. God is essentially making a new type of human. Through the cleansing death of Christ and our faith response, we will be image bearers for eternity. This is excellent news if we think Jesus is holy and good, and we are not. When we lay down our mortal tent bodies and God clothes us in an immortal, resurrected body, we will bear the image of the risen Christ. This is God's purpose. This is God's ultimate promise of good. And who receives such a gift as all things working together for good? Romans 8.28 says, Those who love God. I'll be honest, I've battled with this. God is love. Why isn't he working all things together for good for everyone? But God's definition of good does not acquiesce to lesser things. Those who love him will no longer look like themselves, but be conformed to the image of the resurrected Christ. People who don't love him don't want to look like the resurrected Christ, so they don't receive this ultimate good. Oh, what a good God that he would not just clean us up a little, that he wouldn't be satisfied with making us more respectable than we used to be, but that he would give us his wholeness, his glory, that he would let us reflect him. He will converge his power on all our sin all our suffering, all the tedious parts of life, all things to form Christ in us. This is God's purpose. So as his children, it is also our purpose. So we can tell our souls, God is using all the things in our lives to make us like Christ. Even those things that feel as if they may break us. Even those things. According to Romans eight twenty nine, those who love God will be conformed to the image of Christ so that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In Colossians 1, 18, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. The word firstborn can refer to birth order, but it has a second meaning of preeminence. Christ is the greatest of greats when it comes to rising from the dead and the literal first to receive the resurrected body. A few verses earlier in Romans 8, 14 to 17, God's Spirit tells us that we are His children. We, who share in Christ's sufferings, will receive an inheritance from God equal to the Son. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have Jesus as your big brother? It is part of God's purpose that you will one day find out what that is like. You, of course, have a birthday. Those who have been adopted also have what some call a gotcha day. It celebrates the day they joined their forever family. In Romans 8.23, Paul writes that we are groaning until the day when our mortal bodies are redeemed. He is referring to the day when our adoption will be finalized, the day we will be imprinted with the image of Christ's resurrection, our gotcha day, the day when we will be brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 30 says, And all those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. At the end of verse 30, we see Paul's grand finale, his major points. Those who love God, those who have been directed towards God's purpose, those people have been glorified. Paul is telling believers, do not fear. God is not giving up on you. Even though you are currently suffering, and causing other people to suffer, God glorified you. It isn't a typo. Paul used the past tense. From God's perspective, our destiny is secure. It is an example of that phrase, already and not yet. You have already been glorified. You are conformed to the image of Christ, but it is not yet your lived experience. But God, who is outside of time, is not perplexed by this. He's not worried about how you are going to turn out. He's confident. You may be wondering why I would include Romans 8, 28 through 30 in a Bible study about intentionally living for Christ. These three verses clearly show God is the actor and not us. Intentional living presumes I do something. While some parts of Scripture require obedient action, others are meant to change how we think. They tell us who God is and who we are. That's what these verses do. These words encourage us to not give up in the madness of whatever we face. God will converge his power upon it so that it shapes us to look like Christ. Paul says we know these things, but then life knocks us around a bit and we just aren't sure. But if you can conclude God has good purposes toward you, it changes how you interact with all the things that come your way. Our souls can be at rest while we walk through turmoil. Before we end our study together, I want to leave you with a practical tool that can help you apply intentionality in your life. Looking at your Bible study materials for week four, question 14, I want you to draw two circles, one smaller circle inside a larger one. Label the external larger circle, concern. Label the internal smaller circle, responsibility. In the responsibility circle, write down the things God has given you to do, and only you can do them. These are things that Christ can hold you accountable for. You want to look at your various roles. You're a child of God and have a relationship with him. You are asked to make it your goal to please Christ. As you explore other responsibilities, ask yourself, who is in my family and what are my responsibilities toward each person? What are my responsibilities toward my church and the body of Christ? You may also be a volunteer. You may have a job. You may be a student. What are your duties? What are your responsibilities toward other employees or supervisors, your teachers, your classmates? Consider your role in communication with your neighbors, your responsibility to society and government. This isn't an exhaustive list. I want you to consider multiple areas of your life and how God would want you to biblically handle your responsibilities. In the circle labeled concern, write down the things that are important to you but are beyond your control. Here are some examples. You can take your responsibility at work very seriously and honor God as an employee, but you can't make your boss like you. Or if you're a parent, you can point your children to Christ, but you can't change their hearts. Or you may sin against someone, so you take your responsibilities seriously and apologize and repent to the person, but you can't make them forgive you. These are things that concern us, but we're not responsible for them. Paul Tripp included the circle activity in his excellent book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. After you've filled in your responsibilities and concerns, Tripp suggests that you analyze a few things. First, within the circle of responsibility, have you included things that you can't control? Are you taking responsibility for things that other people or God must do? Putting things in this inner circle that don't belong there is dangerous. It leads to us playing God in other people's lives. It can also discourage other people from taking their God-given responsibilities seriously because we are doing their work. Where you have done this, cross the item out and put it in your circle of concern. Second, within the circle of responsibility. Have you left some things out? You may not be aware of some of your responsibilities. Or you may have a passive mentality that says, let go and let God. When it comes to our responsibilities, this is not a biblical concept. If God has given us a task, he wants us to complete it and will empower us to do so. Finally, in the circle of concern, have you written down anything that really is your responsibility, but instead of taking action, you're just worried or putting it off? If so, move that item to your circle of responsibility. As we go through different stages in life, our circles will change. For example, if you are a student, there are responsibilities you have now that you won't have when you get a job. If you are a parent, your responsibilities towards your children will change. As you get older, more things will become areas of concern rather than responsibility. And of course, as we get older, we can't always complete our old responsibilities So they may need to become areas of concern as we depend on others. Looking for these changes will help us rightly adjust our biblical responsibilities. After you have written and analyzed your two circles, make a plan. Regarding your responsibilities, choose a few that you know you need to do but have not prioritized. Make a list and get to work. God will empower you. Regarding your concerns, pray and stop worrying. I'm serious. If it makes you feel better, you can write down in your circle of responsibility your need to pray for a particular concern. I know that for some concerns, I pray, and then I pray, and then I start praying again before I realize that what I'm actually doing is worrying. So I'm getting better at stopping myself and telling God, you've heard me. I'll pray about this again tomorrow. But for now, give me another person or situation to pray for. And then I practice loving my neighbor and pray for someone else's primary concern and not my own. God wants us to pray for our concerns. God also wants us to fulfill our responsibilities. As you look at both of your circles, notice that they are filled up with things. Don't be discouraged. These are some of the very things God is using to shape you into the image of your resurrected Savior and older brother, Jesus Christ. Your small group facilitator is ready to discuss your questions or insights about this activity. I strongly suggest that you share your circles and some of the responsibilities you have prioritized with a person you trust. Creating friendships that include encouragement and accountability will help all of us live more intentionally for Christ. I want to thank you for joining me this past four weeks. It is my prayer that you've been strengthened, equipped, and encouraged. If you have questions about the God who gave his life for you, please reach out to someone you trust, to your small group leader, or write to me at reachtanzania at yahoo.com. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being your child. I'm grateful that your spirit takes truth from the Bible and does surgery in our hearts. As we make it our goal to please you, even in trials and temptations, give us the wisdom to trust that you are good and good to us. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.